Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, why is today's podcast a bit late, you ask? Well, uh, here in Southern California, we finally got a little bit of that uh, hot summer weather that most of the country has been suffering through for months now. Of course, uh, it was only about 90 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and compared to what it's like in uh, places like, say, Granada, Spain right now, well, uh, we really don't have it very bad. But with that temperature outside, my little office gets really hot once I turn my computer on. So instead of podcasting, uh, (laughs) well, I've just been sitting in front of a fan and reading all day. So uh, there's really no reason to feel sorry for me. Anyway, uh, getting to today's program, uh, I'm going to feature the Sunday morning session at the Esalen workshop that Bruce Damer and I led last June. And uh, to tell the truth, there's one segment that I almost didn't include in today's podcast. It's uh, the part from the workshop where <laughs> where I came up with a truly cockamamie idea for a new creation myth. Uh, actually, I dealt fast and loose with the facts, and uh, overall it was something that maybe a 12-year-old might come up with. And uh, Anyway, I've uh, included it just for the heck of it here to uh, prove that although my body may be 70 years old, I'm still very much a kid at heart. But uh, to be honest, after listening to myself put out that goofy story, (laughs) I'm kind of wondering about my own sanity. Uh, However, I'll let you be the judge of that in just a few minutes. So uh, what we're going to hear in just a minute begins with my closing remarks from the Saturday afternoon session where I comment on what one of our participants said, uh, had just recently said about finding an alternative currency. And uh, you can actually hear his comment at the close of podcast number 321, which was my uh, podcast before the last. Uh, Then, after about uh, 20 minutes, the afternoon session ends and uh, the recording picks up with the Sunday morning session. So, uh, I hope you've got all that straight now, because uh, there may be a pop quiz later. (laughs) Anyway, uh, as I've mentioned before, all of Bruce Damer's segments from that workshop are being combined into a single podcast, and it'll be the next one after this, which uh, I hope to get out by the time our troops are landing on the playa for Burning Man next week. Also, uh, about 48 minutes from now, you'll begin hearing some comments from Earth Girl, who begins by saying that she loves the topic of paradise. And uh, you may want to mark that spot where she begins, because uh, I'm pretty sure that you'll want to hear what she has to say more than once. Uh, These are very wise words from one of our elders, uh, whose physical age, by the way, isn't even half of mine. But uh, nonetheless, this is one of our very enlightened elders speaking here. So uh, let's get on with the show. Let, let me uh, say, put something out here now that uh, I want to talk about tomorrow, and, and not, I don't want to talk about it. I'd like to hear your opinions, because uh, uh, I came here to get something myself, and I, I, I mentioned this last night that, uh, you know, we, and when I say we, the psychedelic community, which is not just people who have used psychedelics, but people who are interested in the, the type of thinking that, that comes from their use, that we uh, are sort of a tribe. We like to think of ourselves as a tribe. But a group of people without a myth 
is a group of people with an ideology, but you know it's not a people. You know that the the uh, the the Jewish people have done an incredible job of staying together, and they think of themselves as a people. Uh, I'm Irish, and I don't you know I love being Irish, and but I don't think of myself as part of a people. But the psychedelic community, uh, I think, is best positioned of anybody in the world to live under what essentially is a fascist police state that we're in and the rest of the world is in because we've been living under the law forever. We know how to do these things and move around and communicate and who, when not to talk and etc. So I think that we've got a, a community, if we can kind of bond and stay together uh, as a, a community and then spread this out, but I think we need some myths that we create, some new stories. You know, the the old myth uh, that we've been living with for a couple thousand years now, it just doesn't wash. You know, the old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne creating a world in seven days, you know, it, it's, you know, who's, who's buying that anymore? But the whole human race doesn't have any new myths based on new science. And so if you look at, at myths, there's, there's really uh, uh, three different phases of myth that Joseph Campbell and people like that talk about. There's the creation myth, the paradise myth, and the myth of the fall. Well, I don't think we need a new myth of the fall because we've been falling for a long time because after the fall comes the hero's journey back to the paradise. And so our position, I think, is that we are in the position to start the hero's journey, or actually we've all been on it, but to help other people get on the hero's journey. But what is the paradise myth we're going back to? Now, I've come up with a real cockamamie uh, creation myth that I'll just start tomorrow morning in two or three minutes. And for a scientist like Bruce, it'll be like fingernails on the blackboard. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a, something based on a, a few little <laughs> tidbits of, of fact. And I'm not going to let the fact get in the way of this good story I put together. But I don't think uh, a creation myth is that important to us as far as where are we going you know, where, is, where, where, is our, where are our cave paintings? What are we going to leave behind uh, for future generations to see that uh, if a thousand years or two thousand years from now there's still people sitting around in Esalen having these talks, uh, they're going to say, you know, how did this all get, how did we pull out of this dive that we were in, in at 2012? Because uh, there's a lot of distressing things happening in the world. So what I would hope tonight uh, in the baths and conversations and all, uh, either on your own or in, in, in a couple groups, come up with a couple new paradise myths. What are, what are some, what's a paradise that we can head to that doesn't require us to drop out of society and move to a commune or something? How can we have a, a, a golden city on the hill that we're heading to without relocating or quitting our jobs or whatever, you know, what is our dream? Where are we going? And, and this is a very selfish thing I'm asking because I'm, my, my next novel in this series I'm writing, uh, I'm stuck right now because I can't come up with great ones myself. De so, devious <laughs> plans to so get I'm, everyone I'm else to come I'm hoping that up I'll with. hear some tomorrow that will uh, help me out of this little block I'm in. And I think this is a perfect group to come up with a new paradise myth. So uh, that's something I'd like to just set the stage for tomorrow morning. So uh, does somebody, anybody have any direction they'd like to go? Or you want me to push it in another direction? Well, I'll, I'll push it in a direction that I'm getting a lot of flack for. And, and I've gotten a lot of nasty emails uh, because of my uh, support for and talking about the Occupy movement. 
And that word occupy and occupy Wall Street is, it's convenient, it's handy to say that word, but the genesis, the roots of that uh, go, go back a lot farther than a bunch of kids camping in Zuccotti Park in New York City. Uh, some would say the, the indignatos in Spain, which, you know, they were putting a half a million people in demonstrations before Zuccotti Park got occupied. And in Italy, the Arab Spring. Uh, some would say the battle for Seattle at WTO in 1999 was a big one. But uh, where I see the really first big change in human consciousness saying that to the status quo and the powers that be saying enough, we've just had enough, was the... Uh, statement from the Lacandone jungle in January 1st, 1994 in the Chiapas when the, the people, the, the, uh, resi- the people that lived in the mountains there said enough with NAFTA. Now, I only have learned this recently, but before NAFTA uh, in the Mexican constitution, there was a provision for community lands and approximately half the me- land in Mexico was community held. And because of NAFTA, they got rid of that. And so the community lands went to the oligarchs. And that's what started the whole uh, movement there. Uh, to me, one of the interesting connections is that all took place within a, a few kilometers of where the Entheobotany seminars were held in Palenque. And it's the consciousness that Terence and a lot of people came out of there. So there is some magic in that lock and Doan jungle. And I think that uh, if you look at what the Zapatistas started, that the uh, Occupy movement uh, is carrying on, and I say Occupy movement because it's a good handle, and it has it's so much bigger than you know Occupy Wall Street. That look at what's going on in in Quebec right now, the student strike that is huge, and the student strike started out as just uh, you know up, they got up to like three hundred thousand students, so they closed the school and locked them out. And it was all dying away and fading until the powers that be said, you know, we can't have this. And so they came in with, I think it's called Law 78, where you can't have uh, assemblies of more than 50 people. You have to file permits for parades. And that got the entire citizenry, essentially, of Canada now. Uh, Every night there are thousands and thousands of people on the streets in many cities banging their pots and walking around till midnight. Uh, This has been going on for months now. Uh, so there's a huge, and that's a change in consciousness to get people out of their houses to do that. So some of the things that, that going way back to the Zapatista uh, beginning, uh, they were opposed to hierarchical organizations. These, these were people who have been living uh, in communal settings for millennia, really. They're opposed to uh, uh, hierarchical organizations. They prefer a stateless, voluntary associations rather than being forced into uh, cities, etc. They oppose aggression and support nonviolence. Uh, they oppose the privilege and the authority of the state, and they support the free and spontaneous organization of labor. Those are their uh, essentially their principles, and that is there's a philosophy that all of those principles are in, embedded in that comes from a, a, what is considered by most people a dirty word. And the philosophy is anarchism. And anarchy was the original concept before democracy in Greece. That uh, in anarchy, not, and not capital A anarchy, burn down the village, etc., but the little A anarchists, the philosophers, 
their, their thought was uh, consensus, not, not mob rule by the majority in the democracy, but uh, which, you know, if we call this country a democracy, it's a democracy of the people who have the most money to buy the votes because kids have been dumbed down. Uh, there's a viral video on, on YouTube that it's, it's funny and it's, it's also sad where they're asking these high school seniors questions like, uh, what war did the U.S. fight to win its independence? The Korean War, the Civil War, or the Revolutionary War? And not one of them said the Revolutionary War. And some of them said, no, it was a World War II. You know, and the people, you know, who is the vice president of the United States? Not one knew. But who, name one Democrat running for president. Not one knew. <laughs> this is how our, our students have been so dumbed down. Now, granted, they, they probably know a lot of math and science and geeky stuff like that, and maybe even literature, but they don't know about society. And, and so they're going to be very susceptible to massive campaigns of voters, etc. And that's why I don't really see any more uh, a lot of hope for political activity. I think the hope is that we need to start taking psychedelic consciousness, to our type of thinking outside the box, to the rest of the world. In fact, uh, I think I have this quote of Terence has written down that I just love. It gave me a lot of hope. He said that... Uh, there, there is always a low level of mutants in a population. And when the selective parameters change suddenly, these individuals have a selective advantage. It's, not, it's that the new types were always there, but not with any advantage. It's that the new situation has conferred a sudden advantage of them. I think that the psychedelic experience is like that at the present level. And so I think that uh, without us getting involved in political actions. We don't have to go to marches, demonstrations. We don't have to camp in the park. But just by talking to not even our children, but to our peers, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, uh, at Thanksgiving dinner, since we're already the freaks at the table, why not just uh, uh, speak up for a change instead of laying low and uh, voice our opinions and get some discussion going. Uh, in I think it's the, the creative, uh, the cultural creatives. That book that Ray and Anderson wrote, uh, probably a decade or more ago now. They did a lot of research over twenty or thirty years uh, about what they called cultural creatives, the people who are really changing the culture. And when they started their research, I think it was in the late fifties or early sixties. It was only like one or two percent of the population that passed this uh, list of questions. And by the time they finished it, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, 25% of the people fit in that uh, category, and hardly any of them thought that they were, they all thought they were alone. They thought they were the only ones thinking that way. They didn't connect, which isn't that very similar to the psychedelic community. You know, that, that you know, we think that uh, the person living two doors down from us would freak out if they knew that we'd take an acid or smoke pot, and they're probably doing the same thing in their house. And so it's time to stand up and be counted uh, in a very small way. We don't have to go out and get newspaper press conferences and stuff, but I think that it's time that, that we, as a community, should think about coming together a little bit more because it's global. It's not just a few people in California. Uh, as I told you earlier, there's, there's uh, you know, 
people from over 100 countries are downloading these podcasts and in in China in the Middle East and in South Africa and many African countries in all of Europe and Scandinavia and, and Russia former Soviet Union everywhere I'm getting downloads from things and this has been going on for years so there is a huge group of people that think just like we do and now how can we come together and so uh, that's why I, I'd like to get some kind of a myth that we can uh, uh, hang and not just one but maybe four or five or, or, or more and then uh, I don't know how this would happen or how we could do it but I'd be more than happy to get involved if somebody wanted to set up uh, keeping this group together in, in ways online and we could Skype together and have some more of these conferences have some conversations we've got the tech we ought to use it and, and uh, I think that if we can kind of maybe stay together, and, you know, just getting together on, on, online once a month to once a quarter, something like that, so we don't lose the energy that we build by being here in person, because as important as the tech is, I don't think there's anything more important than physically getting together like we're doing right now. And so we've, we've built a little community here. I'd love to see it being a, uh, able to seed many more communities and, and bring this together. And... and I haven't asked Bruce before, but I think he would be willing to Skype into some of these things, too. So uh, maybe tomorrow we can kick around some of these types of ideas, too. So that's, that's really all I have to say about it. And uh, now I'd, I'd hope that you would either think about it, discuss it, or whatever. Yeah. Here, let me give you this By the way, we have a mailing list called Levity, and it's at Google Groups. But if you just reply to my email to you, just say, add me to Levity, and I'll put you on it. And there's about 35 people on it. There's another list called Terrence McKenna, and it's at Google Groups, and it's for people who are really doing serious work with Terrence's legacy, and it's Dennis's there. John, I think you're on that list. And so it's projects around the McKenna legacy. But uh, Levity is about this kind of discussion, and you know, just about the human future and about history and, and that kind of thing. So you can join it. There, there's two things I've been thinking about along these lines. One is, is you touched on, right now, none of us could stay alive without having some money to get food. And it seems like one of the first things to do is to su get a food supply that is independent of, of dollars. And Esalen growing their own food uh, classes in gardening and growing your own food without getting involved in dollars because the way and and I don't think you know you could vote for this guy or that guy and I don't see how we can as you know just individual people bring down the Fed Reserve and stuff like that but the way to bring down the the one tenth of one percenters is to make their money worthless to us. So if we didn't need money for food, that's step one. And one of the things that started in England in the 90s and is growing over here now are called time banks. And that's where, uh, and the IRS has approved these as non-taxable transactions. Everybody's hour, every human hour is worth exactly the same. If you're a neurosurgeon or a gardener or a cab driver, uh, your time is worth the same. And these have become very successful in a lot of places. There's two of them now down in, in North County in San Diego. And uh, people are putting their time in so that 
uh, I could teach somebody how to do blogging or podcasting and give me some hours. And if, if I could trade those for somebody who's gardening, I could trade those for somebody who, who uh, I could give some to our, our, our daughter who uh, could use them to, for a babysitter. In Madison, Wisconsin, people have donated cars and fuel. Uh, just donated it to them, and how so tra- other people. How, how do you translate commodity to the top? Well, that's what they're. That's what they're in the. This is a ground-up evolutionary organic thing. So there's nobody has said here's how it works. You know, they're. It's all jiggling and trying to get it to go. But the first step is to get rid of money. So if if none of us thought money dollars were worth anything, uh, what if the whole country all of a sudden said? Well, you billionaires, uh, well, enjoy your digits in your bank account, but we don't want any of your money. We, don't, we can live without it. And so g- changing the money. So, and there's, there's no, again, Occupy isn't an, it doesn't have a leader. It doesn't, it, Occupy is a thousand different ideas. You know, it's, it's a change in consciousness more than a movement. It's a movement of consciousness. And so uh, I think those are the kind of things that would be worthwhile to get together and talk about where you you can get people from a dozen or two dozen time banks to come here and say here's what we've learned here's what worked here's what didn't work and you know, get gardeners to come and say here's here's a way you can build a garden in your apartment uh, you know a hanging garden outside the wall uh, there's a lot of things that I think we the people us, us little people can do uh, on our own to start becoming less dependent on the Fed Reserve and stuff like that rather than trying to just politicize and knock it out. I was just going to make the obvious uh, note that I think Mao Zedong came up with that idea. <laughs> and and uh, but the but the thing is um, if the mushroom has something to say to us about the future now you're going to get my opinion. <laughs> It has to do, and this, this to me is, is one of the prime lessons that I learned uh, in <clears throat> wrestling around with, with Terence McKenna's ideas. And, and not only uh, saying, oh, that's kind of wild and wacky and interesting, but you know, actually tracing some of these down. Okay, let's take the stone date theory and and you know what's the anthrop- anthropology and archaeology and rock art information and all that. And there's a lot of you know you can actually look at some of these things. But what I learned from him and what I think is the way out at this particular juncture, because things are moving so fast, is the <clears throat> the ability to open the imagination and think outrageous ideas and then use some very fine discrimination as to which ones should be acted on and which ones should not, and develop the ability to do that. But if there's anything that Terence McKenna teaches is that, hey, think outrageous ideas, because you'll still never get how crazy it is when you're out there in the hinterlands. I agree. And I think maybe do we all agree with that? That's a beautiful statement to end this full day. This the heavy lifting day has been concluded. Uh, it's not just think outside of the box. Think there is no box. Right. <laughs> 
What I want to do is, is to uh, kind of kick off, I hope, hope last night some of you have thought of an idea of a, a new paradise myth. And the reason I'm into myths is that, uh, you know, what do we have to get us out of this funk we're in? You know, that uh, I used to be really politically active, and, you know, I've given speeches from farmhouse porches in, in Illinois farmland to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and demonstrated the White House and nothing did any good. You know, it's just too big a monster. It's like trying to turn an aircraft carrier with a canoe. You know, you, it's just we're too small to do that. So I think we have to come up with new ways to create a new civilization within the shell of the old, because I don't think it's about changing a system, I think it's about changing a culture. And we change a culture one, one mind at a time, starting with our own minds. What, what kind of a culture do we want to create? And you know, I, I call us the tribe, the psychedelic community, and it's, it's uh, kind of not a great idea to call it a psychedelic community, because most of the people who we really want to reach out to aren't, aren't really interested in using psychedelics even. Uh, however, I've been amazed at how many people come to the psychedelic salon and say, you know, I, I've got some friends that have used them. I'm not interested in doing it, but boy, these talks are interesting. And that's what psychedelic thinking is. You know, it's not thinking about drugs. It's thinking about manifesting a new mindset to the world. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell. And uh, he's got some great uh, programs that are uh, streaming on, on Netflix uh, uh, the Mythos 1 and Mythos 2 series. And the first series of Mythos is a five-program series, and the first four programs, he talks about the, the rise of humanity for 200,000 years is going back, and, and he goes through all the myths that have evolved from the ancient prehistoric times. And he ends that series saying the pinnacle of human consciousness during that 200,000-year period of time were the rights that Eleusis, which, uh, you know, Hoffman and Ruck have written a, a, The Road to Eleusis, which is a brilliant book that pretty much uh, convinced me that, you know, we know that there is some sort of mind-altering substance they were using. And so it definitely was a, a psychedelic of some sort. And even Joseph Campbell admits that uh, that was sort of the, the pinnacle. And so I've, I've studied a lot of these myths, and they have a creation myth, a paradise myth, the fall myth, and then the hero's journey return. And it doesn't matter what culture you study, from the Aborigines in, in uh, Australia to uh, Africa to even Eskimo myths have the same structure to them. And to me, that what we are lacking now is a new paradise myth. That, uh, you know, paradise, I think we've discovered, isn't buying the latest version of the iPad and uh, isn't working in a cubicle. And isn't, <laughs> well, maybe for some people. I found it not very paradisical <laughs> myself, but <laughs> the cubicle hell. But, <laughs> but and, and, you know, right now we have so many young people that have spent a lot of work going through college and getting a good education, but they're so far in debt and their only jobs available are flipping burgers. And so, and, and in Spain, 50% of the young people are unemployed. 50% of the people from 25 and under are, are unemployed. And uh, that's, that's pretty a big number. And in this country, I think it's uh, already up to about 20-some percent. So we're, we have a huge bubble coming up of intelligent, educated people with nowhere to go, no future. And 
I don't think any of us uh, really can say, well, the future is to do this or that or go back to land or grow your own food. I think all of these things come into play, and it's not one size fit all. Uh, I, I personally am not somebody who would want to live in a commune, and I haven't seen many successful ones. But I think that uh, there are ways that we can create a picture of a future of some kind. Uh, and that's what I said. I'm personally blocked on that myself, so I hope you guys will have some ideas for me. But I wanted to kick it off with a new creation myth. You know, how did humans get to where we are? You know, uh, and uh, we don't have time to go back to the whole consciousness thing and the ruling elite and how they've uh, instilled fear in us and put us in the spot we're in. But my creation myth is one that uh, I, I put this together in honor of Terence because I'm not letting any facts get in the way of a good story. So <laughs> and some of these parts of this, it's a short story, and I, it'll be like fingernails on the blackboard for people like Bruce probably. But uh, here, are, here are some foundational facts that are, are real. First of all, uh, Francis Crick, the uh, co-discoverer of DNA, uh, admitted that he used LSD, and that was part of the uh, process. So I think it's nice to bring him in here. And then for years, I have been, I couldn't believe people talking about junk DNA. You know, 97% or so of all the DNA they had been calling junk because the, the chromosomes are only in that bottom little part that really create our bodies, etc. And uh, I can't remember the book this was in. Mary C. will remember. Supernatural by Graham Hancock. Uh, he he uh, wrote about uh, a scientist who studies linguistics, and they ran the so-called junk DNA through this test that tests for human languages, and it meets all of the criteria for a language. Well, about two weeks ago, uh, one of the, pro the researchers at the Human Genome Project has uh, published a paper saying that the DNA, the so-called junk DNA, is of extraterrestrial origin. Now, Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA, actually was trained as a statistician. And he once stated that the odds of DNA coming together just at random, as the science has been trying to say, the odds of that happening are higher than a tornado going through a junkyard and creating a complete 737 aircraft. Yeah, just statistically speaking. 747? <laughs> okay. See, I, somebody else has some of these good facts. Great. <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> I knew I'd find one of the others. <laughs> so, you know, there's... The, but now the Human Genome progr pro Program is a project is saying that it is definitely of extraterrestrial origin. Or that, not definitely, but they, they suspect it is. Now think about this. Every cell in our body has not one copy of this, but two copies of, of all this long string of information in, in every cell. And the junk DNA in our cells is, is very, very closely similar to that in a gnat or a fly or a, a possum or a, a little raccoon that I thought was a cat last night and almost petted. Uh, <laughs> that, was an ex <laughs> that was a psychedelic experience in the dark, let me tell you. <laughs> So, the, the, uh, so there, there's one part of the story, okay? Somewhere this came from, and I'm, I'm saying in my creation myth, it came from off-planet. Now let's, let's shift gears a little bit 
to uh, a project that Bruce and Rusty Schweikart, the astronaut, have proposed at NASA that's now gaining a lot of momentum, and that is to capture an asteroid and bring it in Earth orbit and harvest it. Now, to me, uh, I can't understand why NASA, since day one, hasn't been working on a project to at least go out to an asteroid and push it away if it's heading this way. And uh, this Tuesday, we're having a close flyby, uh, like 14 moon distances of a city block size asteroid, LZ-1, is going to come by. And you'll be able to watch it on the web, by the way, to see this. So that's taking place, that the technology is being developed to bring an asteroid in Earth orbit and control it. Now let's say, in a part of this galaxy a long time ago, far, far away, there were some people that looked like us. And they learned to do this, and they wanted to populate the galaxy. Well, uh, as Bruce has firmly convinced me, sending humans into space is just not practical. I mean, there's so much of the energy required to keep a body alive uh, needs to be done other things with. So the way to populate space is to send DNA out there, and maybe a little DNA robot that could land someplace safely and then create little human-like robots. But, you know... Sending DNA out into space, you know, there's a lot of risks and all. So what if these people, like us, maybe only 100 years ahead of where we are right now, because technology is going fast, decided to put some DNA inside these little asteroids so they'd be safe, and then send them out into space? And then what if they, they really got really good at this, and instead they kept getting bigger and bigger asteroids to send out with these little biological, potential biological robots in it, till they had one that was the size of the planet that we're on. And this, this was actually just an asteroid. And they put all this stuff in the center of it. Now, here's the next little factoid that, that again, don't get, don't uh, hold me to all the facts too strictly because it'll ruin my story. But in the deep ocean technology today, in these vents, where the, the, uh, the really hypothermal vents, a lot of uh, life is coming up from inside the Earth and forming. Uh, at least in some instances, they don't know for sure exactly, but it looks like perhaps some of this stuff that these ancient ancestors of ours, maybe five billion years ago, put inside are now bubbling up because, you know, life started in the ocean, allegedly, and then made it there. And that's where these little biological robots came from. So maybe there are hundreds of other planets like this with people that actually look like us, that have our same DNA, and what the, the, the is going on is the, the game, because I think it's a game, is to, to translate and interpret this so-called junk DNA. And the first group that figures it out wins the game. And Actually, what's going on right now is these are avatars that we're in. We're all sitting in a big game room somewhere controlling these avatars. And I like to think of myself as a player in the Earth game. And I'm not in line to discover... I'm not going to win the game because I don't think I'll interpret that. But I'm gonna, I want to find the people and help the people who are trying to figure out what that code is because once they win it... 
game over, then we all get together and have a big party in our game room and say, hey, remember that time we were at Esalen in that part of the game, the Earth game? So that's where I see us now, and it just lightens my load to think it wasn't an old man in a long white beard that created this place in seven days. That story just doesn't wash with me anymore. So I'm into the Earth game idea, and so that's my creation myth. And you don't have to build on that, but what's our paradise myth? We're on a hero's return right now, that we've been through the fall, or maybe the fall is still going on. It's a fall from the, the nature-loving... Uh, you know, we've lost our connection with both the sky and the earth for the most part, and we're all trying to reconnect to both of those. Uh, this place is great to connect with the sky, you know, and the earth. So how do we... What are we returning to? What, what can we take home with us that we can, in our little communities where uh, our neighbors might be grumpy and might think we're nuts or whatever, but we've got friends that we can ride a bicycle to almost, hopefully. What, what can we take back in the way of a new paradise myth? Somebody's got to have one. I think that the paradise actually is that community that the hero goes back to and the reforming of that community to accept the knowledge that <clears throat> the frontiers people have, you know, and the explorers have brought back. And in fact, it's probably a community of explorers. And I mean this <clears throat> in the most nitty-gritty sense because there's a huge amount already going on along this line that we've talked about this weekend. And, um, and there's a huge, huge necessity for that. I tend to see the whole thing. I've I've made a, a kind of a symbol out of it, in, in um, when I think about it, <clears throat> and it's actually it's it's a piece of software. It's a it's like the beginning of something, and I call it the medicine circle because a medicine circle can be you know obviously it has its its psychedelic implications, but you know it's much broader than that. And it's it's about healing. It's about creativity. It's about whatever it's about. And and uh, I imagine it as <clears throat> something a place you can go to on the web or download it for your iPad, your latest iPad, of course, <laughs> and your iPhone or whatever. And all it is is like you say, <clears throat> you you just tune in. You just click, and you you say, I am entering the medicine circle. And this image, of, you're looking at an image of a circle and there's a bunch of flocking dots or whatever, you know, that represent whoever has said, I'm in the medicine circle right now. So I always imagine it as, you know, I'm going to trip. Okay, I'm going to click in and there's my dot and it goes bing, you know, in the medicine circle. And I can go there at any time or day or night and I can say, look at all my community swirling around like little stars in this circle together. <clears throat> but I think it's actually kind of practical because I think communitarian software like that can be used just so any community can say, we identify with each other and we just want to see each other you know that we're here. It's like a way of going ping and touching, touching bases, and it's, it's a very simple notion. <clears throat> I so, like that a lot because it also uh, doesn't abandon the tech. That uh, I think that, uh, like I, I said earlier, that uh, Evan Moglen pointed out that the World Wide Web and the connectivity is he, in his opinion, and I agree with him, the most significant technological development since writing, because it is 
person-to-person communication. And I love the thought that I could click into a medicine circle uh, any time, night or day, and find some friendly people there to interact with and learn from, and like that. So I, I think that's a great idea. And in fact, uh, you said an explorer, uh, bring back. Uh, I just happen to have a quote about that from, uh, I just finished reading a book called Memories and Visions of Paradise by uh, Richard Heinberg. It's, uh, I think, about five years old. It's a good book. And he, he said, an explorer must linger in unfamiliar surroundings and have enough courage to brave the disorientation that inevitably results from his sojourn. Then, once he is reoriented, he must have the openness of heart and mind to see significance in what he has encountered and the generosity of spirit to transmit that significance to others less adventurous than he. And I think that's a good definition of a psychonaut, uh, you know, the people that go into psychedelic uh, experiences that uh, I, I don't, can't speak for everybody here, only myself. Uh, I got into it because it was fun. It was pleasurable. I enjoyed it. And I, I stayed because it was, you know, who I am, and it, it opened up the spiritual aspects of me. I had spent a large part of my adult life trying to distance myself from what I thought of spiritualism because I conf- uh, conflated it with religion. And I, you know, I'm a recovering, well, I'm a recovered Catholic. I'm no longer recovering. I finally made it through the, the portal. But I think that uh, a mistake a lot of people are still making is equating spirituality with religion. And, you know, religion is just a, sort of a dogmatic spirituality. And, and it's hearing what the priests say about their experience and spirituality is a personal experience and there again that's to me what Terence was preaching about is the the psychedelics are it's a psychedelic experience it's not something you can talk about or read about or write about uh, that will a hundred percent convey having an experience Here's a recipe from Kim Stanley Robinson's new novel, 2312. Take an asteroid at least 30 kilometers long on its long axis. Any type will do. Solid, rock, rock and ice, metallic, even ice balls. Later on, he says, begin with a light dusting of heavy metals and rare earths as specified for the biome you're trying to create. After that, string the axis of the cylinder with your terrarium sun lines. After that, you need biomass. Pull all the ice gathered in your scraping, except for enough to, when melted, will make your crumbled rock matrix moist. Then add your bacterial inoculant and turn up the heat. The matrix will rise like yeasted dough as it becomes that most delicious and rare substance, soil. Then it goes on. Make a marsh. Add some animals, plants, fish, amphibians, etc., Thus, over time, you can transform the interior of your terrarium into any of the 832 identified Terran biomes or design an ascension of your own making. Later on, each terrarium functions as an island park for the animals inside it. Ascensions cause hybridization and ultimately new species. The more traditional biomes conserve species that on Earth are radically endangered or extinct in the wild. And it goes on. We cook up our little bubble worlds for our own pleasure, the way you would cook a meal or build something or grow a garden. But it's also a new thing in history and the heart of the accelerando. I can't recommend it too highly. 
The initial investment is non-trivial, but there are still many unclaimed asteroids out there. I like that. What's the name of that book again? 23. Oh, 2312. 2312. <laughs> I like that. Hey. Um, I have been trying to figure out a new paradise myth and the core elements of it for me are that we're living through culturally a shaman's journey and that you encounter terrifying things in the underworld and by turning and facing them you acquire knowledge or power from these formerly terrifying situations. And I think 9-11 in this culture has uh, become that dark beast and we're turning around and facing it, but I think connected to it is all these inner, uh, all these catastrophes and traumas that the planet's going through and all these people that are living through hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. They're building empathy in our hearts and we're sharing for the very first time in the human history, 9-11 was the first thing that everyone essentially shared while it was happening. If you were paying any attention at all, 99% of the, the planet was hip to the fact that this is going on and that it's a catastrophe. So for the first time, we have the basis, an experiential, shared experiential basis to start creating a planetary culture based on actual experience and not on trying to force somebody into accepting your ideology along with its creation myths and all the other stuff. And every time I see a father holding some injured child in a catastrophe, my heart breaks and no longer is that black guy or that Japanese guy or that other or whatever. It's a father with a hurt child. And my heart feels it. My, my head doesn't matter anymore. It gets overwhelmed. So I think we're acquiring the basis of a new culture by sharing all this suffering and acknowledging it and learning that we're all one. And that that's sort of the, the challenge for us as a culture now is to become a collective messiah rather than waiting on brilliant individuals to show up. We're creating a collective love and embodiment of community just by living through all this trauma. So that's kind of where I think we are. Let me see if I had any other <laughs> note on this. Oh, just that the media plays this crucial role in bringing us this uh, imagery of empathy. We can't just throw it out and you know, live without it. It's here, but that's one of the unanticipated benefits that I see accruing around this moment is that we are, are becoming aware of each other as humans where the boundaries to inclusion are just melting. We're very quickly becoming, you know, one being. I grew up in a family of racists, I mean, really hardcore, nutty Southern Ku Klux Klan type people. And by the time I was one of the elders in that family, Either all the racists had died off or they had met interesting black people or worked at a job with a Chinese guy they really like, and it had all gone away. I mean, the South I grew up in doesn't exist at all. I mean, there are still nasty people out there, but it's over. You know, it doesn't work anymore for anyone to be racist and, you know, have all that kind of implicit elitism. So again, I think that this suffering we're living through has a place. If we walked into a room and there was a woman on the floor having a baby, I don't know how many of you have gone through that, but it's a pretty harrowing thing, and it can look very violent and very scary if things don't go just right. 
And I think it's something like that. We're shocked. We're like, oh my God, what was that that just came out? You know, and what's that part? And, you know, all this stuff going on that we, oh. But I think we're going, we're learning to accommodate to that and we're learning to be planetary beings really as we speak. This is part of why we're here in this building and this Esalen still exists for all of us. That's my new, uh, kind of redemption myth and a way to paradise, I think. I think paradise is just a sustainable way of living without war. We can get there if we just want to. First of all, on on that uh, alien thing, I think think there's also a story that the alien came here and loved our woman and just mate with them, and then we got that uh, DNA from them. And then from a backward homo sapien, we, we came, we got this intelligence. So there is that thing. As far as paradise, I think uh, I'll, I'll start with actually a parable of this guy uh, uh, going to heaven. And they wanted to, uh, they asked him, you know, just give me a tour of the heavens that, you know, you have a choice actually, you could go to heaven or hell. Do you want to pay a visit to hell before you go to heaven? And he said, yes. So he, they take him to hell. So the scene is this big, massive table with all kinds of food, anything you want in hell. And then these people sitting around this table with an arm that doesn't have this bowl. So they try to reach and have the food and they're frustrated by the fact that they can't put it in their mouth, their own mouth. And everybody's angry and they're yelling and screaming and they're just, just, just frustrated by the fact that they can't put the food into their own mouth. So says, no, no, they take me out of here and take me to heaven. And then they go and take him to another room. There is a similar table, exactly like the other table, full of all kinds of colorful, delicious food. And then people sitting around that table that similarly have arms that doesn't have this uh, uh, elbow, but no one is nervous or upset. Everybody's picking food from the table and putting in the mouth of the other person in the other side, and everything is calm. So, <laughs> so heaven and a picture of heaven is really what uh, what we can make in our own mind whenever, wherever and whatever is happening. There are a generation of Indian people that are building roads, that live on the roads, and never see anything other than that road. Children are being born, raised, while this road is advancing and they're building this road. So, I guess heaven and hell is, our, is in our own mind. and. Uh, that's the picture. I think if you want to live heaven, you got to create it. <laughs> <laughs>
Hi, I love the topic of paradise. Um, I'm living there most of the time um, in my own mind because I got moved from Santa Cruz to Joshua Tree, which to me was like, you know, a Martian landing and the worst thing that could have possibly happened until I realized that there wasn't, okay, there's no water, you know, I'm from, I'm from the ocean. And I understood that I had to become the water, you know, that I was the bag carrying the water. And what the water meant was um, just purity, emotion, love, presence, um, that, and, and to be able to bring that, that in a place, sometimes we're spoiled for choice. I mean, blessed Northern California, but wow, can there be a, a level of entitlement and, uh, and judgment, you know, that's amazing when you go somewhere that none of this bounty is. You know, when you go to, I call it lost America, when you go see how the rest of America is actually living. Um, so I began to understand that I had to become the oasis, you know, that we, it's our, part of our responsibility to become the walking oasis and not expect it and depend on it and rely on it from everything else. Um, so one of the traditions that I study with are about the Leka, which are the high mountain shamans in Peru who never really had to, much like the Kogi, they never had to really um, give up their original connection. They never got colonized. And so the, the basic, the crux is that mythologically we left the garden. We got kicked out of the garden. We had to live with thistles and everything had to be painful and disgusting and difficult. And they, they never left, you know, in their world. They're like, no, um, actually in our mythos, uh, God got us all that is. Creator gave us the keys to that um, basically creation wasn't done. And so we, they were meant to co-create and be the, um, the caretakers and what's in the, the, um, the uh, stewards. Right, you know, you're the stewards of the garden here. This is your planet. You're you're responsible for it. What do you, you know? You take care of it, and this is where we've definitely gone wrong. I mean, we don't uh, we've we haven't taken care of ourselves. You know, ourselves, our connections, our relationships, our our kids, our world. It's just like whoa. So, um, forgive me if I segue into uh, into other places, but essentially, Earth is. You just take Earth. You take the H. You recycle it into the front. It's heart, and so the key is that we've like we've actually left the heart. You know, the heart is where paradise always lives. So going back to the Leica, going back to this whole shamanic reality, it's a vibrational thing. They're still there. They're living there. They're amazed. They don't even, they're like, wow, like you don't get it. You're, you're living in another, like you said, who said octave last night? You know, there's another octave reality. I was octave, Terrence said, octave. Um, and we have the opportunity because it does exist and we, we are all you know, made of the same stuff. So you can reattune your whole system to vibrate in that capacity. Um, what I'm also, I've been involved with the, like, the food and the kind of biochemical revolution for a long time, along with the psychedelic thing. I created uh, the first smart bar in San Francisco. So I brought smart drinks into raving and house acid house culture because I realized um, as a, a drug exper- experimenter that that was unsustainable. You know? And for my culture, they were going to get so hooked on that and they were going to just burn out really quickly. So I wanted to create a way that if you didn't want to take drugs, you could still stay up all night. You could still you know, communicate and be alive and vital. Or if you did take drugs, you wouldn't have a bad trip because your body would be totally fed. So that's always, strangely enough, and I give a lot of credence to, um, to, to ultra-dimensionals, as I call them, and also to mushrooms and to you know, all consciousness tools for putting me on this platform path and for you know making this one of my 
my divine appointments was to come in as, as I was earth girl at the time. So I was definitely, you know, like, uh, and still am rocking the earth vibe to, to remind and to remember and to kind of reseed consciousness with this. So that was like the Dirk and Sandy blessed, you know, life extension, super scientists. I worked with them. And as I've done my journey and kind of gone, um, and that was hyper, you know, hyperspace style. They're, they're rock and roll scientists from another galaxy and bless them. Um, so they're working with all, with like the deep molecular stuff, but we go back to all these ancient cultures and what they've used, the original energy drink, the original energy, maca, cacao. I mean, right now we're having this huge superfood revolution where these, um, these paradise foodstuffs are assisting us because what did you say about being nature? Um, but you can ha- we have to be responsible to let nature be in us. So to actually take the items, take the foods, that the things that we've evolved with or that have been here before we have and that nature, God got us all that is created for us to evolve in, in you know, in, oh, back to, there's, a, there's a, another woman I study with. Her name was Jasmine Heen. She's a um, breatharian. We love Jasmine. She's definitely from another place. Um, Australian mom who just, you know, got the word from the the Ascended Masters to stop eating and has been going around the world, you know, showing people it's possible. But her thing, she has a lot of, like, little mantra codes, and one of hers is uh, divine DNA paradise grid match now. So we're presupposing that there was an original plan for creation, which has been enacted and is still occurring in certain cultures and peoples, where there's a divine DNA paradise grid match. There's, it's a grid match. It's matching the grid that was laid for this paradise plan. So we are on our way back to the garden. But the garden you know, actually lives within the heart. It's just we've gotten so top-heavy and so heady and so thought-obsessed that it actually, you know, yet again, last night, it's like, is anyone actually in reality? Like, what reality are you in? Because you are ready. You're bringing so much with you that it's... Ugh, the sieves are so thick it's like you can barely experience I see this all the time I'm a healer so I'm, it's amazing I'm like whoa I'm trying to get through layers with people it's like ah. so now I'm just like let's just bypass that eat this you know drink this <laughs> this will actually reattune your form and, and uh, revibrate you to the paradise I call it paradisa I like paradisa um, to, get, to get home you know we all want to go home and it's like can we, get, can we get home and that's the original plan that's like Terence's reality, all of it is like, come on, like the way home. It's like the breadcrumb path, the signage, like let's go. So we're at a, we are at a critical juncture right now. And so I would say be the oasis, you know, be the wave. Don't wait for the wave, be the wave. Be the oasis and start to tune into all of these paradise foodstuffs. We've got coconut, all this stuff's available. It's never been the way it is right now. So have a spoon of, of coconut oil. You know, return to where these, where paradise, where the stuff's growing. It's like, oh, it's from paradise. Bring paradise, bring paradise in, bring it with you. Um, and yeah. So that's one doable. That's like a doable factor. And we're watching this. We're watching this, this revolution. It's, um, it's a, like it's a food thing. Oh, and I actually, I call it, um, and this is, no one can use this without giving me royalties. Um, no, it's called, uh, I call it Edenism. Edenism, yeah, because I've been witnessing my culture. I've watched my culture for 20 years. I'm definitely like the OG raver from London, and it's like, it's gone, it's beautiful, and it's gone, but it's gone into uh, narcissistic hedonism. You know, it's like, wait a second, in the guise of all of this consciousness and geo-eco, and I'm like, but the, the, it's still like, everyone's still veiled. There's still a mental process and a program and an ego trip, you know, that's c- kind of clouded and obscured in all this 
ma you know, magical consciousness stuff, and it's like, blessed is that, and it's closer than ever, but it's like, Eden. So we're, we're all on the return to the garden. And but it really is, it's, it starts here. It's holy, starts in the heart. Whatever you can do to reconnect with your heart, which is reconnect with the earth as well, just like whether it's notice that everything's alive, even if it's your house plan or the food you're eating, or just have that level of intention and respect and like, oh, you know, consciousness, bliss, grace, like, thank you. And be in that state of gratitude because that's really an earth thing too for every breath, for every moment. And for how, you know, like I said about the spoiled thing, for how much we have access to and use it in that capacity. I think that's, that's a big one because then you change your vibration and then that changes everything and you start to turn people on. From that. Okay. Oh. oh. <laughs> what you do with what you've got for your... I'm going to take a short right turn, <laughs> a left turn, uh, back to the DNA. I, I just wanted to say that I, I totally share the DNA... Um, idea because that that those the <clears throat> the mushroom more than anything else has has uh, put me down into that level of the DNA and the biomechanical linguistic machine elves or whatever the hell you want to call them <laughs> but but that's you know that that's totally real to me you know and that and that um, the McKenna's initial crazy speculation in La Chirera about the fact that they were influencing or at least tuning into or reading or in some way communicating with their DNA um, is, is very, you know, is a very real possibility to me. I don't call it a fact. I call it an experience. And that <clears throat> somehow developing, this is part of my, my communitarian vision, <laughs> is it's a really large community in each one of us, you know, which, which has to do with with the entire line of ancestors, and if it goes back uh, extra planetary, you know, I mean, in a way, it just pushes pushes the uh, problem of how did DNA get assembled in the first place, and who was smart enough to do that, <laughs> you know. Which brings me to the game theory <laughs> of the universe, which I also happen to subscribe to, and uh, <clears throat> personally think that the first thing we have to do is you have to realize, and this is a psychedelic realization that. This is a game. If, you know, before you can get out of a game that you're playing, you have to realize that you're in it, <laughs> and you're in it, and what role you're playing in it. And we're all embedded, you know, in a lot of different games, and we call them culture. Um, I don't happen. To... Okay, that that's always pointed up there. I, I don't happen to subscribe too much to the the noble savage. Um, mythology that, you know, somewhere there are these perfect tribes who have preserved an Edenic um, consciousness because it, it just doesn't... That, that's an old colonialist myth, actually, from the 18th century. And um, I mean, we're moving on. We're moving on in one way or another. And, and we have to learn everything beautiful and wonderful we can from the past, but we also have to deal with our current situation, which is so radically, radically different. And I don't know anything other to do in terms of creating paradise other than to take care of each other, to take risks, and to share our most outrageous ideas, and to 
find the others. Find the others, continue the dialogue. Create your own medicine circle. We're all part of one or another already. Just keep it going. I like that addition, find the others and continue the dialogue. That That's, I like a lot too. And you're as strange as I am, Diana. <laughs> um, I really appreciate what you said. That moved me deeply and um, reminded me sort of what you started, we spoke about yesterday about the um, the bonobo part of ourself that, that's more around community and sharing and uh, kind of connection, as, as you said, the way that they would sort out conflict. And I really, I feel like this new age and this new step is, is a lot about, you know, the re... Um, empowerment, the re-embodiment of the feminine in all of us. It's the earth energy, it's the mother energy, it's the sitting in circle, it's the, the living from that heart space. You know, there are actually brain neurological cells that surround our hearts and, and just like you said, whatever, whatever I can do to live from my heart and to, and to really know what that is and to kind of clear the blockages in my own life and in my emotions and in my stories that prevent me from living from that place, like that's my work and that's how I'm going to get myself toward paradise. And if I live in that space, then I attract those people around me and I, and I shine that out and, and, and let people know that this is possible, you know. And, and if, I'm, if I'm living in a way that I'm taking care of my body and, and taking care of myself and, and being kind to others and, and living in that space of gratitude, that, that just ripples and... and you know, I and mean, there's so much that can happen from that place, and it affects every single person that I interact with, and thereby, you know, hopefully can can move forward. And so I think that's the way to paradise. It's all in us, and it is that remembering. You know, it's anything I can do to kind of start to shed some of these layers of of culture and the programs and all the the shit that's kind of bogged down my organism for so many years that, that really I really don't need and, and um, so that's you know that, that's my work and that's what I hope to kind of move forward and and, uh, and I think I feel like it's so possible there's so many brilliant minds and hearts and beings alive right now doing really incredible things and, and to just join together and I so appreciate the circle and, and you two creating the space and really continuing this conversation that feels so essential right now. So, thank you. And what you said about when you live in paradise yourself, you do attract other people to you, and that's how it really spreads out and grows. I like that. Uh, my uh, only addition to, the, to this kind of paradise myth thing is I, I spent a little time um, thinking about hierarchies and how to do away with hierarchies because I think hierarchies are the uh, some of the basis for you know insecurity and aggression and, and various things and what I came to from uh, thinking about it was the only structure that is truly non hierarchical that can um, not be uh, hierarchized or, or a hierarchy created is a structure in which every single node is connected to and, and uh, aware of every single other node within the structure. You know, every node is aware, aware that it's connected to every node and is connected to every node. 
Um, and so you can't create a hierarchy from that because every node knows that it is the everything and a part of the everything. And so I wonder if, if we as humans wouldn't be able to create this kind of system where we were not like always constantly streaming everybody's thoughts into us. But if we had our own individual identities and we had our own individual thoughts, but then we also had this kind of outer layer where we, are, we were aware of the loving energy or the pain energy of those around us and of those distant from us, such that, that if somebody was in intense suffering, we could like find them because it would be prickling at us. It would be hurting us. And we, we wouldn't necessarily know why they're suffering because we can't read their thoughts. But we would feel that there is some pain in the system. And if everybody was connected in this way, we would obviously have a desire to correct that pain because it's causing all of us discomfort. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to go right in the face of... <clears throat> I'm going to use, uh, talk about a Catholic symbol, which is very meaningful to me. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I never recovered. <laughs> But it's a symbol of the sacred heart. And, and, and it's a gory symbol, as many of the Christian symbols are, because they do talk directly about suffering. <laughs> and um, the symbol of the sacred heart is a sacred heart surrounded by a, a crown of thorns. So that every time that heart expands, it digs the thorns deeper. And it feels more of the pain and then it expands further, and it expands further. So it's the, the extraordinarily difficult process of taking in pain and suffering and being present with it, which is, if, there, if we're headed for anything in this world for the next umpteen days, months, years, decades, it's not a pretty scene in many, in many cases. And our hearts have to get really big, and they have to be also be able to withstand the pain and grow at the same time. And, and that's, that's a tough one, because it's not all peace, love, and brown rice out there. We need peace, love, and brown rice. We need to emanate as much of that as we can. We also need to absorb that pain in a way that doesn't destroy us, but that makes us stronger. give you a, a link to a, another possible paradise. Uh, I don't know, how many of you have read the autobiography of Yogi? All right, so you all know the chapter where uh, Swami Sri Yukteswar comes back, uh, resurrect himself for Yogananda, right? So he talks about where he is and where he was. I think... Uh, uh, Steve Jobs read uh, the autobiography of Yogi every year, once every year. I, and I think so many of his chapters has so much gift. And where uh, Sri Yukteswar, this man, uh, returns uh, to flesh to satisfy the desire of Yogananda and talks about where he is. I think it's really... Uh, uh, you know, 
At least that chapter is something that can give you a lot of different ideas about whatever uh, paradise you're looking for or you may be looking for. So I just wanted to give you a link to that. If you uh, are looking for other possibilities, just read that chapter. That book is available for free on Project Gutenberg to download as a Kindle reader. Yeah. The Autobiography of a Yogi. I want to tell you a story from Burning Man. Uh, as Probably many of you here have been there, and for those who have and those who haven't, some years ago, well, every Saturday night, um, amidst great revel and celebration, there's the burning of the man. Uh, and the idea is that one would burn away, perhaps, uh, regrets, sorrows, intentions of the past, so as to create the new. It tends to resemble a, a kind of... Um, uh, somewhere between a Dionysian and a Bacchanalian revel. But some years ago uh, came the creation of a temple. And uh, the temple every year is made of hundreds of thousands of pieces of jigsawed wood, about this big, all glued together. Extraordinary structure. And it's out further than the man. The, the city is created in a semicircle, and here's the band, but way out in the, the farthest reaches of the gray-white playa is this temple. And this first year when the temple was created, all throughout the week, you would find people from the city going out to the temple. And they had been invited to write on a piece of the temple the name of someone or some people that they had loved who had died. And so all through the week, in the midst of this great party, this great revel, this great act of, yes, communal love and celebration and feeding of the other, and in a certain sense created paradise on earth, an alternate science fiction, internally consistent reality, all of those things, in the middle of that was this place where you could go any time of day or night and find people writing names and weeping, sometimes silently by themselves, sometimes comforted by others, sometimes in the full light of the sun, sometimes in the filtered light of the moon. And Saturday night this first year, there was the burning of the man, and there was a wild party, and there were fire dancers, and there was drinking and madness and revolution. And then come Sunday, everything got very quiet, and the dust began to blow. And all day long, a fierce wind came up, and it blew this great white dust of the playa so that you would look out at the temple, and it was there, and then it was gone. And it was there again, and then it was gone. So that this great symbol of, of evanescence, of transcendence, of was here and then not here, and this particular year, it had been constructed so that it looked like a Gothic cathedral, it looked like a Jain temple, it looked like East meets West, it looked like the meeting of every possible culture. And at about twilight, six, seven at night, 
without even speaking to one another because there had been no ritual that had been prescribed top-down that had been communicated about. But just from an internal sense, all the inhabitants of the city began to gravitate out toward this temple until finally, just as the sun was setting, all of the inhabitants of the city were gathered silently around this temple. And the fire dancers appeared and they moved toward it and they lit the torch and they were just about to set it aflame when the wind came and it blew and it blew and it blew and it blew and the temple disappeared. And the fire dancers stepped back and the wind blew and it blew and it blew and we were there gathered silently in this circle and we began to be coated with this gray-white ash like a ring of elders staring at one another, red-rimmed eyes, coated in ash, silent, just waiting. And I looked up and realized that the moon was full. And just as suddenly, the wind stopped, the temple appeared, the fire dancers moved forward, they lit the torch, it burst into flame. And suddenly I was seized by a kind of grief, just ripped open and began to scream. And the grief had nothing to do with me. It was some huge grief for something unnameable, something so huge. And I wondered, what is it that we as a species are gathered here now to learn that has to do with the communal witnessing of a building that looks like east meets west. It has to do with fire and dust and a whole race of people with red eyes screaming and coated in gray-white ash. What is it that we as a people need to understand and witness about communal grief, about shared witnessed grieving and expiation about truth and reconciliation, about release of grief on a planetary level so that this movement of the heart that you're talking about, so that this heart pierced with thorns can really grow and as Ken is talking about, embrace the whole planet so that we can feed one another, so that we can feed ourselves. What's so important in this moment that the whole planet is collaborating to teach us this lesson, give us this image of this building on fire and people who have all week comforted one another coming together now in this final moment of grief and, and release and celebration so that the winds blow and the moon is full. Well, of course, that was September 4th, 2011. And a week later, there was an, an image, another image of a building a building on fire, a building, and the gray-white ash raining down, and the people screaming. But what did we do with that image that we saw again and again and again and again? As you said, Ken, as a planet, what did we do? We took that in as immense trauma. And yes, we all, I'm convinced, as nodes, we know we are all screaming pierced hearts right now because it's impossible not to be collective planetary witnesses for one another at this moment on this planet. That's why we've developed the media we have. It's why we've developed 
the neurophysiology that we have. It's why we have the coding that we have. It's why we have all of these senses at once. It's why we're all ha- taking the journeys that we are and having the experiences that we are. It's because te- telepathy is our birthright, and we all know that, and that's what we are clearly through our media, through our images, through our experiences, through our circles, through our journeying, through our storytelling, in our hearts, experiencing together, telling each other over and over again, in our eyes, in our stories. And so, we can have images of building burnings, and we can be traumatized by them, they can lodge in us, we can use them as an excuse for fear, collective hate, revenge, all of those things. We can go into the closet. Americans have. They've been deeply traumatized. We are in a post-traumatic state. And we are afraid that if we came out of the closet and said, yes, we know what we've done, that no one would catch us. That's why scared children go into closets when they know that their parents are having terrible problems. Because they think if they came out and said, daddy's hitting mommy, nobody would catch them. But it's not true. The world knows anyway. Everything knows anyway. Everybody knows everything about one another. We all know that. And if we, I believe, were able to come out and say, yes, I own both what I have created and what I can create, what my past has been and what my future can be, I know that the whole world would catch us individually, would catch us as a country, and I know that we would hold each other. So I believe that we need to, yes, grow those pierced hearts, that we need to offer each other images of acknowledged suffering and grieving, but images that like the one in the desert, as opposed to the one that the media gave us of the burning building, that the one in the desert offer the possibility of fire and release into paradise. That's my myth going forward. Oh. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And there is obviously no way to improve upon those closing thoughts about myth that we just heard. Uh, And by the way, that was Galen Brand speaking, and uh, Galen also happens to be Bruce Namer's wife. Also, I think that uh, Galen's story is uh, well worth listening to once again, and uh, maybe right now, in fact. So, uh, have you now gone back and listened to uh, both Galen's and Earth Girl's comments once again? And if not, uh, why don't you do it right now? Uh, then I won't feel like I've got to go back over their thoughts for you again, and uh, there's really no way I could improve on what they've had to say. And just to give you a little preview of my next podcast, uh, the one that's going to be featuring Bruce Damer, well, uh, one of the things that it will also feature is a beautiful remembrance poem to Terence McKenna by Earth Girl. Uh, you sure won't want to miss that, nor will you want to miss the uh, song to Terence that uh, Galen Brandt sings uh, right uh, following Earth Girl's poem. It was a truly wonderful ending to our weekend workshop, and uh, that will all be coming your way in my next podcast. Now, there are still a lot of things that I want to talk about, but my little office is already heating up, and uh, so I'm once again losing my energy. Or uh, let's just say that I'm uh, still in kind of a lazy summer mood. Uh, However, there is one more topic to cover, and uh, I'm not going to be able to do it justice right now, but I want to at least plant the seed, and uh, we'll take it up again later. 
As you recall, uh, in today's program from Esalen, we heard Diana Slattery talking about the need for someone to develop what she was thinking of as a medicine circle app of some kind that we could log into and join a few of the others in a real-time global gathering of some sort. Now, uh, in a similar vein, I've received a couple of wonderful offers of technical help for the salon. But I have to confess that I've fallen way behind on my correspondence once again and have seemingly been ignoring these fellow saloners who are so kindly offering help. It isn't that I don't appreciate it. Uh, it's just that I'm only spending as uh, little time as possible in front of this computer right now. And so I haven't taken the time to really think through the several proposals for help that I've received. But uh, here's the situation. Right now, I'm in pretty good shape on the Bare Essentials, which is uh, basically posting a podcast and program notes. And now that we've shifted to our own dedicated server, my hosting company is giving me unlimited bandwidth, so uh, that's no longer a problem. Uh, and expenses for this are also manageable. Uh, it's only costing about uh, 250 bucks a month to uh, keep this show up and running. And between uh, my book sales and donations, uh, those monthly expenses are pretty close to being covered on an annual basis. But what a lot of us would like to see is uh, more ways for all of us to interconnect in real time, or at least maybe in our own little social site of some kind. So here's my idea. I've gone ahead and purchased a URL for us to use if uh, those offers of technical help can be translated into setting up our own gathering place on the net. The URL is findtheothersfindtheothers.net. And uh, if you go there right now, you'll see that it's just a placeholder page. However, uh, I'd like to turn that URL over to a group of our fellow saloners who are interested in building it into some place where we could maybe hang out. Uh, maybe something like what Diana was talking about. Also, uh, Bruce and I would be more than willing to uh, join in, uh, say, a group Skype-like chats uh, once or twice a month or something like that. In fact, uh, one of our fellow saloners uh, mentioned there's some software called TeamSpeak that could uh, also be used for large group voice chats. And uh, I'm sure there are other things like that out there as well. Now, uh, I personally don't have the uh, time to become directly involved in this project myself, uh, other than to participate on a regular basis uh, once something's up and running, that is. And it, uh, it, anyway, it shouldn't be uh, something that I come up with on my own. Uh, to be successful, it's going to take a whole group of our fellow saloners to come up with uh, ideas and the technical expertise to pull it off. And uh, if that can come about, I'd be more than happy to give that URL to whomever wants to take the lead on a project like this. Now, uh, one more thing. <laughs> the offers to help that I've been receiving have uh, come in via email, Facebook mail, Twitter mail, and comments on my website, among other things. And to be honest, I just can't keep it all straight. So to discuss this particular idea, the only place that I'll be focusing on is uh, in the comments section for this podcast, podcast number 323. As you know, uh, you can get to the program notes for this podcast via psychedelicsalon.us or .com, .net, or .org. Uh, at least I think I've still got all of those covered. But the uh, comment section is the best way for me to keep all of these discussions straight. Uh, since I've, I've got to personally approve all comments, they can't slip through without me seeing them. And uh, I'll also put my personal additions to your comments in there, too. 
And that way we can have a community discussion of sorts between uh, people with ideas, uh, tech chops, resources, and uh, just plain old uh, group encouragement. So uh, let's give this a try and see if there's enough enthusiasm to get something in the way of a place to find the others uh, and get it established yet this year. After all, uh, we've got the tech, it's uh, very close to free, and uh, so we ought to use it. Anyway, uh, that's the beginning of my little idea, and hopefully in the weeks ahead I'll find the energy to pass along some more of the ideas that have already come in from some of our fellow saloners. And uh, actually, I'd planned to talk about several more of your ideas in this podcast, but uh, that's one reason I'm already late getting it out. Uh, I get lazy when I'm hot, and uh, right now it's getting really hot here in the salon. So, for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>